We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. So, Robin. Hello. I have a really interesting person to talk about. Well, I just can't wait to hear. (laughs) Okay, well, first of all, I guess we should introduce ourselves, but I think they know us by now. You are? Robin Jones-Gunn. And I'm Cheryl Broderson. And Robin and I love getting together and talking about these women. And both of us love the discovery part, too. Yes, because there are more and more women that are coming on our radar, and we just can't wait to hear their stories. And we love that we get to share those stories with you. Thanks for your feedback and letting us know how these women have encouraged you. It's so true. And and not only that, too, it's like um, I keep telling Robin, I think I fell in love again. <laughs> Every time <laughs> I get one. these women, yes. and. The same for you. I mean, we we end up feeling friends with these women. We yeah. do. We sort of walk in studio and go, well, I have a new best friend. Exactly. I want to introduce her to you. Exactly. So yeah. in heaven, we'll be like, oh, I know you. I know your story. It's <laughs> true. It's so fun. It's true. It's so fun. Okay. So today I have Josephine Gray Butler. So we're going to go across, what do we say, the pond. So across the Atlantic, all the way to England. So... Um, I found Josephine Gray Butler um, while I was researching previous podcasts on Catherine Bushnell, Elizabeth Blackwell, and even on Florence Nightingale, even though Jasmine did Florence Nightingale. I found her, um, I was, because I also do the research, and even with Catherine Booth, her name kept popping up. Interesting. Like, who is this Josephine Butler? She even had a correspondence with um, Catherine Bushnell. And was friends with Elizabeth Blackwell and was involved with the Salvation Army. Isn't that interesting? And as we said, like as we talk about these women, it's interesting how many of them. And there's going to be another connection that you're going to see as, as we get further along. In England, she was considered a liberal. And this is going to be interesting. But as we get into this story... Um, you'll realize why. But she was also considered a suffragette and an activist. She considered herself an ardent Christian who felt compelled by God's word and her faith to action. She didn't consider herself any of those other things. So she was born on April 13th, 1828 in Millfield, North uh, Thumberland, and that borders Scotland. So it's like the far northern border of England. Her father, John Gray, was the equivalent of a real estate manager and agricultural expert. She was the fourth daughter of her father, John Gray, and the seventh child of her mother, Hannah Annette Gray. So obviously her mother had been married before, maybe widowed. So her father had a cousin who became the prime minister of Britain, known as Lord Gray. Oh, what a connection there. Yes. And later, Lord Grey would appoint her father to be manager of the Greenwich Hospital Estates in Dilston. And that was only a bit south of where she was born. Her father was an activist, and he campaigned for the abolition of slavery. Yay. Mm. Um, Catholic emancipation. Now, that might be like, what? (laughs) So this was the repeal of the religious persecution by the Act of Uniformity. That was imposed by Charles II in 1662. We talked about that on previous podcasts. Yes. That's where they, they're trying to make all the nations believe the same. I'm sorry, all 
of the religious denominations in England believe the same thing and have it all come under the Anglican Church. And so not only were the Catholics persecuted, but so were the Puritans and the Quakers, the Presbyterians, and anyone who was not a Catholic, uh, anyone who was not um, an Anglican. And here it is, the early 1800s, and it's still being extracted from... Right. And, and they were under uh, severe persecution um, because they could actually seize their land for the Church of, of England. Mm. So it was really, really bad. So he wanted those laws reformed, and he also uh, campaigned for what was called the Corn Law, and it was a huge tariff that was placed on imported foods such as grain. He also worked with um, local farmers who were poor to help them learn how to farm to improve their techniques. Her father treated both his sons and daughters equally in the home and insisted that both his daughters and sons receive an education. And her mother, so they said she got kind of her her activism or her desire for the poor and her willingness to stand up for others from her father. Like, don't don't let people do that to other people. But she got her ardent Christianity, her ardent passion for Jesus from her mom. And her mom would teach her daughter and all her children from the Bible every single mm. day. So when Josephine was 17, she was out riding her horse. And this was an experience that had a profound effect on her. Because there was a local man in their community, and he was kind of notorious. And they knew that he had impregnated a young woman and then abandoned her. And so as she's riding, she sees that man um, lying by a river, and he's committed suicide. Oh, dear. And it just had this, this effect on her about, you know, something is wrong. Something is just wrong. At the same time, she became somewhat disillusioned with the parish priest at her local Anglican church. She surmised that he taught them, this is, this is an interesting line, all he knew about God, but his words did not even touch the fringe of my soul's deep discontent. Ooh, that's... Isn't that so yes. good? So in mm. other words, the priest's relationship with the Lord was shallow. And you got to remember in those days... Mm. Um, the priest, Anglican priests, bought their position or they got their possession by um, maybe because of graduating from a certain school or because they knew certain people, but it had nothing to do with a love for God or love for the Bible or, you know, passion for Jesus. And that's what she sensed in the Anglican church. She's like, there's a disconnect here. Mm -hmm. And yet at 17, she developed a passionate prayer life. And so she wrote in her journal. It's interesting how many of the women we look at That's true. have a journal. How about you? I have a journal, but I just write Bible lessons. And every once in a while, you'll find a, a story of one of my children or grandchildren or something that happened in that day. I'm not as good as they are. <laughs> I do write my thoughts. That's good. What about you? Oh, I have so many journals oh, yeah. that my son one time was looking at the shelf and said, Mom, when you die, can I sell those on eBay? That's hilarious. <laughs> because they're mostly prayers I write out. Yes. Or 
Uh, yeah, it's a pouring out my heart to the yes. Lord, and then also I capture ideas. It's like oh, a butterfly yeah. net. I run after an idea, and I've got to write it down. That's what you know. Somebody is. said called it one time a seed journal, because oh, most yeah. of the ideas for you know whether it's a book or whether it's a Bible study that I do are coming from this devotional time and my journal. It's true, and they're birthed out of that. Like you, I have two huge plastic bins, huge that are filled <laughs> with old journals. Yep. I wanted to See, throw them away. See, you're more of a like, journaler than you made us believe. It, yes, yes. It, well, it's, it's all recorded. It's with Bible study lessons, and every once in a while, there's a thing about me. But mostly, it's thoughts and Bible studies and whatever. And yours will be up on eBay me. too when right the day next comes. to yours. <laughs> right next to yours. Let's die together, or get raptured together. Yeah, I like that, that. One better. <laughs> so she says this. I spoke to him, God, in solitude, as a person who could answer. Do not imagine that on these occasions I worked myself up into any excitement. There was much pain in such an effort and dogged determination required. Nor was it a devotional sentiment that urged me on. It was a desire to know God and my relation to Him. Don't you love that? Beautiful. And so she wasn't like, um, it wasn't because of any frenzy in her soul, but just this deep, desire to know God personally. So at the same time, she's about 19 now, she visited Ireland with her half-brother, and it was the time of the Great Famine, and it was her first um, sampling, because she grew up without any want, without any need, and it was the first time she was among people that were poor and starving, and she said until this time, she had no knowledge of what true misery really was. No conception. You know, she had seen poor farmers, but it was nothing compared to what she saw in Ireland. In 1850, this is is the cute part. She began to see a young man named George Butler at various balls that she attended in County Durham, where she lived. Now, George had graduated from Exeter College in Oxford. And within months, of George meeting Josephine, he was sending her poems that he wrote himself. Is that so romantic? Aww. You could just picture one of those movies from that time period, and there yes. they are dancing. And <laughs> yes, and then you know, you know, a month later in the post, someone comes riding up on a horse yes. and says, "This is for you," and it's a, it's a poem. And so, they were married in 1852, and she was 23. They lived in Oxford, and George was a scholar and a cleric. Both had a strong faith in God, and early on in their marriage, they initiated the practice of always praying together. I love this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she wrote this, We prayed together that a holy revolution might come about and that the kingdom of God might be established on the earth. A holy revolution. Holy revolution. I, I just love that. It's kind of like when we pray for revival. Yeah, it's a bold prayer, but it, it was in her heart to pray that. And every Clearly. night, every yep. day and every night they prayed wow. this. So Josephine really struggled in Oxford, both socially and physically. Oxford tends to be rather damp because of the fog and because of the um, river. And that runs through it. And she had to go to many of these meetings for the college with her husband. And she found that many of the men in Oxford uh, were misogynist. They really did not like women at all. In fact, they felt like women came from a lower class. And they were joking. And their jokes were cruel 
and insulting. And there she was, an educated mm. woman. But at this time, women weren't allowed a higher education. Right. They weren't allowed in any of these colleges. And she was getting so um, upset by the conversation. And she said that there was um, this misguided uh, idea that these men had when she would overhear uh, the conversations. They would talk about their conquest of women. And brag about that. And yet, they would say a moral lapse in a woman was spoken of an immensely worse thing. And she just said that it should be both. It should be both. So she resolved, and I love this, not to rock the boat or speak out, as she put it, but to speak little with men, but much to God. Oh, that's good. Don't you love it? I mean, she's such a woman of prayer. Like, I'm going to take this Mm -hmm. right to the throne of God. So during this time, she and her husband heard of a woman who had been seduced and impregnated and then abandoned. The woman, when she gave birth, she she murdered her baby, the the newborn. And she was caught Mm. and sent to Newgate Prison. So Josephine and her husband, um, they petitioned the court that they might take in the girl. She was very young. That they might take her in after she was released. And they brought her into their house. And she lived with them. And Josephine trained her and uh, taught her domestic duties. In 1856, the damp weather in Oxford was just getting terrible. So they moved to a town called Clifton, and it's near Bristol. So perhaps you remember that Elizabeth Blackwell was born and raised near Bristol. By this time, the Butlers had three sons, George, Stanley, and Charles. And George took a position as the vice principal of Cheltenham College. But they were socially ostracized by the community for their, get this, outspoken support of the Union Army in the Civil War in the U.S. Is that right? Mm -hmm. They were strong abolitionists. And most of England took the side of the South because they had trade going on and they wanted the cotton. And so it was, you know, financial uh, discipline. And she said the rejection was often painful, but the discipline was useful. And how interesting because England was ahead of the U.S. in abolishing slavery And Mm -hmm. yet those Mm -hmm. deep pockets with always, you know, follow the money to find the allegiance. And there it was. So what they abolished was the slave trade, but they didn't abolish slavery in many of their, um, like Jamaica and some of these other islands for a few more years. Because it was all about the money. Yep. It was all about the money, as you said. In May of 1859, she had her fourth and last child, a little girl girl that she named Evangeline, Evangeline Mary. But when Evangeline was only four or five, she fell from a banister 40 feet onto a stone floor in their home. And she died three hours later. Josephine, after this, would struggle with depression and uh, she couldn't even talk about it or write about it till some 30 years later. Mm. However, the death of little Eva, as she was called, made Josephine more determined than other ever to help others. I mean, she just said, 
I've lost my child. My life means nothing unless I'm doing something productive for the kingdom and for others. So after Eva's death, while she's still struggling with all of the emotional trauma, her son Stanley came down with diphtheria and was very, very close to death. And he recovered. Woo! Yes, (laughs) he recovered. And George um, decided to take the whole family to Italy for a vacation. And George and Josephine also had in common, they loved Italian art. In fact, they loved, both of them loved everything Italian. Whatever the Italians were doing, whether it was the food or the architecture or the language or uh, the art, they loved it all. And they loved to go to Italy whenever they could. Well, there were other Brits that that was sort of their cultural trip if they had the wherewithal to pay for the journey. And uh, it's fascinating when you read some of the works by Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And they left Wimpole Street in London and got to the warmer climate with the culture and the art and Made a home there. Spurgeon used to go um, to Italy, too. So um, when they they were on their way, you know, by ship to Italy, Josephine had a full physical breakdown on board the ship. I think it was just all too much for her, the, the getting through Stanley and his living and, you know, losing little Eva. And she just broke down. So Italy was really good. While they were in Italy, George was appointed the headmaster to Liverpool College um, in 1866. So from being kind of south in Oxford, they're going to move further north. And So the family moved to Liverpool. And Liverpool, remember, was a large industrial city. One of the big industrial cities besides London yep. was Liverpool. So Josephine wrote in her journal at this point, that she became possessed with an irresistible urge to go forth and find some pain um, deeper than my own, to meet with people more unhappy than myself. And she said it was not difficult to find misery in Liverpool. Isn't that interesting? What a wonderful way to channel yes. your pain. Yes. You know, I know I'm hurting, so I know that I can help others who are hurting. And I can understand, and I want to find those who are hurting so desperately. She began to visit the workhouse at Brownlow Hill. The workhouse held 5,000 people. These are people who couldn't afford a rent, but they were willing to work. And so they lived in squalor. But she would sit with the women in the cellars and pick oakum. You might say, what is oakum? Because I (laughs) had to look this up. Oakum is um, the the boats, when they were done with their rope that they used on the boats, these women would take the ropes and they would divide all the fibers uh, from, from each other. And then the fibers were repurposed to do um, like mortar for between the stones in really? the English houses. So they would sit there and pull the fibers apart. This is how the women— this. This was about the only way women could earn money in the 1800s. Talk about recycling. Right. <laughs> recycling, but they'd have to sit there and oh, it would my. it would chap their hands and it would cut them, but they would just pull the fibers apart 
uh, all day long. And so she would sit with them and she would actually pull the oakum with them so she could feel their pain. And mm. to go into as a as a wealthy, you know, patron of society, her husband, you know, the vice principal of Liverpool College, but to go into this squalor and sit with these women and pull apart the fibers. And then as she was doing it, she would talk to them about Jesus. She would tell them Bible stories and she would pray with them and for them. That's so good. The whole time. So the butlers then decided that they need to open their home, especially to the prostitutes who are dying from advanced stages of venereal disease. This is why she's considered a liberal and an activist. That's extraordinary. they might say in England, these things just aren't done. We just don't do this. Well, we don't want to right. know about it, look about it. If you're high society, That's you right. just thank God that you were delivered from a life like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think this is the same time when Charles Dickens is writing his That's novels, right. and he's giving that broader community a picture of what that mm-hmm. kind of life is like. She was friends with Charles Dickens. No. Yeah, funny enough. <laughs> but they it's were amazing. They were friends. I didn't put that in here, but I'm glad you brought it up because they were friends and they Well it just helps to get that visual picture of what she was living in or choosing to step away from the comforts she had to right. identify That's and right. be able to reach those That's right. and were in that trauma. You know it's it's really interesting. I was reading a book about um, Patricia St. John's father. Now, Patricia St. John was mm-hmm. um, lived in England. I fell in love with her, too. Uh, moved to uh, Morocco and had a ministry there. Uh, just a wonderful woman. But she wrote a book on her father. And her father was a banker. And he had a passion for God. And so he went to, um, what do you say, the shelter to share with the men at this you know shelter. And they wouldn't accept him at all. There he is in his suit with his Bible. So he took his free time that he had, and he went to a thrift store, and he bought clothes just like the the poor in England wore. And he went and he lived in that shelter with these men, ate their same food for a full month. And then when he began to teach them from the Bible, they accepted it. Amazing. So I think it's Robert McQuilkin, and if you don't know Robert McQuilkin, he, he's a— uh, he was a missionary. He's, he's written some great books. But he once said that the best missionaries are incarnational. In other words, they enter into the life and the culture of others and bring them Jesus, which is what Hudson Taylor and other missionaries did. But they followed their example from our Jesus, who, you know, yes. being in the form of God yes. and equal with God, humbled himself and became one of us. Yes, And so this incarnational evangelism was the most effective because she didn't disdain their life. She didn't mm-hmm. look at them as less than or lower. Mm-hmm. She's like, you were made by God. You're important to God. And she would you know, sit with them. And then even bringing these prostitutes, and most of the prostitutes that they brought in were in the advanced stages of venereal disease. They were dying. They let these women die in their house. I mean, talk about things that just weren't done. Yeah. But can't even imagine. Her willingness to do this. So at the same time, there were too many women, um, and they couldn't service all of them. So they set up a hostel to house women 
um, in order to get them out of prostitution and provide them training for jobs. And she got the funding. She went around to all of her friends, people of means, and, and she said men of means, like, you're going to pay for this. <laughs> and she said, you know, maybe out of guilt or whatever, but they gave. And so that's how she bought this property and set up this house um, to get these prostitutes off the streets. Um, later, she would find out that most of the prostitutes she met were um, seduced, forced, and we'll talk about that later, into prostitution, some of them as young as 12 years old. Oh. And so she just had this growing burden. And this, again, why she was considered an activist for helping people. <laughs> for helping people. She's an activist. Radical. She's, oh, she's a radical, exactly. <laughs> You're doing what Jesus told you to do. Yeah, stop <laughs> it. Just... <laughs> yeah, stop it, stop it. So they, then she set up a second house that provided work for the women. So after training them, they needed jobs that they could make money at. So she called this the industrial home. And they would make envelopes and they would sew. So at the first house, uh, they would learn to sew. They would learn to make these things. And the second house, the industrial home, was like where they would go to actually work and produce these things. And this one, she took donations from the local merchants. So Josephine also began to campaign for women's rights at this time. And this is important because unless you think that, oh, again, there she goes, you've got to realize that she wanted the right to education for all women from elementary, because she got it because she was part of the upper class. But she was meeting all these women that never learned to read or write. And that was another thing that they were teaching them in these homes, just the simple act of reading and writing and being able to communicate uh, in these ways. So she was the right to education and also higher education, the right to vote, which we're so glad we have, yes. and the right to jobs. Women were excluded uh, from jobs a lot because there were people in the government that wanted to see women in prostitution and not see women... Um, making a difference in society or having jobs. And then she also campaigned for the right for married women to keep the money they entered the marriage with. And it was called the Married Women's Property Committee. And this is really important because what she saw, too, is some of the wealthier women Yes. that had an inheritance or were heiresses, that these men would seduce them, marry them. Mm -hmm. And then once they had their fortune, they would abandon these women. And these women either um, became part of the poor or they had to move in with their relatives because of what these men had done. And there were a, a large bit of charlatans. If you've seen the movie, um, Pride, not Pride and Prejudice, uh, Sense and Sensibility, Yes. Remember the, oh, what's his name? He does it. Uh, she's calling his name on the cliff. I can't remember his name. But she, he is doing that to other young women, you know, fleecing them of their fortunes. So there, I think there's 
that might be a combination of a couple different movies, but some period pieces that's often mm-hmm. part of the storyline right. and right. trying to determine this young man's intentions because it was so common. Mm-hmm. So there's so much more to her story, believe it or not, because you know, you're thinking, but wait, she's already a mother. She's a living in Liverpool. At this time, she's probably in her 30s or early 40s, but she's unstoppable. And so I'm going to stop here and we'll come to the um, second part of Josephine Butler's life. And I I feel like I wanted to talk to her because um, she was maligned and she's not often mentioned in Christian biography because she was considered an activist. And so they see the word activist and they're like, oh. But then when you realize she was active for all the right things. I'm so glad you dug in deep to find out about her. I had never heard of her. No, and I was just, she just kept coming up. And I thought, well, if Elizabeth Blackwell likes her (laughs) and if the Booths like her and if, you know, um, Catherine Bushnell liked her and they had a correspondence going, I want to know who she is. So there's so much more. So please, please, please come back for part two. Yes. So this is Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones Gunn saying, please join us next week. Yes. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and our new co-host, Robin Gunn. For more information about Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about Robin, visit robingun.com, that's gun with two N's, or follow her on Instagram and Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Gunn.